0: Listening to the podcast of Northside Assembly of God in Crowley, Louisiana. All right, I've got a, a very unique message for you today. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting topic that we're going to talk about. I'll mention it in a moment. Uh, but here we are now. This is our last official gathering of 2020. The next time we all gather together, we'll have a new year. 2021 and uh you know we're always looking forward to a new year but i think especially this time uh i'm ready to turn the leaf i'm ready to turn the page and uh, so we're going to be in a new year and as such the fact that this is our last gathering um it's an opportunity for me today i want to cast a little bit of vision for the next year for 2021 as uh, as we enter into the next 12 months the next 52 weeks i want to cast a little vision for you, something I want to introduce into the life of our church. I've been praying and ruminating over this for the last few months, and I think it's time for us to do this. And um, and and it's a new project I want us to be a part of. It's called Project. We're going to call it Project Fifty Eight, and it comes out of Isaiah Fifty Eight, which we're going to be looking at shortly. But part of Project Fifty Eight is going to be about taking the practice of fasting which fasting means going without food for a certain length of time. We're going to take the practice of fasting and work it into the, the the routine, the natural rhythms of our life. Now, right off the bat, as soon as I talk about fasting, some of you are here like I came on the wrong Sunday. You know, especially after after all that I just ate this this past weekend and and all I'm going to eat this coming weekend I came on the wrong Sunday. He's talking about going without food. This is not good for me to be here today. But uh, I feel like as I, as I get into this, as I preach with the Lord's help, if I can just do a half-decent job today, I think what's going to happen is by the end of this, you're actually going to be excited, hopefully, about, about what we're going to be doing. Um, but I want us to go ahead and look at our text this morning. I'm going to tie it in with our Colossians series. We're in Colossians 1, kind of towards the end of Colossians 1. And I want us to keep these two verses there on the screen for a few minutes. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to some gathered Christians in the city of Colossae. And he says about Jesus, he said, It is him, it is he, Jesus, whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. This church family has to be the goal of everything that we do as a church. Our goal as a church, our number one target is not this. It is not asking how can we attract more people. And how can we keep more people? That is not the end-all, be-all for Northside Assembly, and it ought not be the end-all, be-all for every church. What is the end-all, be-all is that we present everyone mature in Christ. That's our goal. Now, now I'm interested in having more people be part of the church. Absolutely. I, I'd love for more and more and more people to be part of the church of Jesus Christ in every church. I'm interested in that. But I think... What happens with a lot of churches, and I'm going to confess, I think very early in my ministry for the first, I don't know, I don't know, I don't even know how many years. For me, the main focus of my my ministry, the main question that I would ask, and I think this is representative of many, is, man, how can we get more people in the church? How can we keep more people? Now, I'm interested in that, but what happens is if that becomes the target, if that becomes the end-all, be-all of what we do... Well, then it becomes the guiding principle by which we make all of our decisions. So every sermon I preach, every song we sing, everything that we do as a church gets filtered through the question, will this help us attract more people? Will this help us keep more people? And when that becomes the guiding principle of your decision-making process, what inevitably happens is that your message and your emphasis as a church gets diluted. It becomes compromised. Because now it's going to be very, very difficult for you to say things and do things if people aren't going to like it. And what I see in, in Jesus' ministry is that, yes, there were seasons when people flocked to Jesus by the multitudes, but sometimes in those moments where Jesus has like thousands of people around him, he sometimes in those moments said his most polarizing sayings. Like in John chapter 6, verse 66. He just kind of steps on their toes. And you know what happens? They all left him. They all abandoned him. But the only reason Jesus was able to do that is because he understood his target. That I am called to say what God wants me to say. I'm called to do what God wants me to do, not to manufacture or engineer uh, some symbol of outward success. So, So we want more people involved. We want to keep more people. And there are things that we can do to do that. But the number one goal of our ministry is what Paul says. That's, this is what my heartbeat is as a pastor, as a person, is I want to present myself and I want to present as best I can, as much as it's in my control, everyone mature in Christ. This is what Paul is obsessed with in his letters. As far as church growth strategies and, you know, um, methods for engineering numerical growth, in Paul's letters... You never find him comment on that ever. He never says a single thing about it. What he does talk about over and over and over again is how to become authentic followers of Jesus who are producing the fruit of the Spirit over and over and over again. So that's our goal. That's our goal. Years ago, I um, read a book by uh, John Ortberg. It's called The Life You've Always Wanted. And it's sitting on my bookshelf in my office. I've since read it numerous times. It's one of those books where I've read it so many times and I've marked in it and I've highlighted and I've taken so much notes in it. You can hardly even read it anymore. And it's a fantastic book that really helped me a lot in my young adulthood. But in this book, The Life You've Always Wanted, John Ortberg talks about how the Christian life walking with Jesus is very much like a marathon. I don't know if we have any marathon runners this morning, long-distance runners. Okay, we do. We do have a couple people. One of the things about running a marathon is that it takes a whole lot more than just willpower. You cannot run a long-distance race just by wanting to, just by having the will to do it. Nobody just wakes up in the middle of the the morning having not done any training whatsoever and just says, I think I'm going to go run a marathon today and expect to finish it. You don't run a marathon by trying really, really hard. Running a marathon involves training. You have to enter into a life of training. There are certain training habits and practices that you've got to center your day around you've got to adopt a daily exercise regimen and these training practices these training habits every day begin to build into your body the capacity to do what it could never do just based on willpower alone and as you begin these training practices Your body's growing in its capacity. And now, rather than just running two miles at a time, well, now you can run five miles at a time. And then a little while later, as you continue in the practices, now you can run a half marathon. You couldn't do that before. And then over time, eventually, you're able to run the marathon. But it's the the, the regimen, it's the training practices that enable you to do what you could not do just based on willpower. So running a marathon is not just about trying hard. It's about training. And Ortberg says, this is true of the Christian life. If I'm going to become an authentic follower of Jesus, now understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying the initial moment of becoming a Christian. That's easy. Anybody can become a Christian. But if I'm going to become Christian, if I'm going to become an authentic follower of Jesus and learn how to consistently throughout my life love my enemies, if I'm going to become the kind of person who is patient during hardship, if I'm going to become the kind of person who can absorb accusation and criticism without uh, lashing back out at the person, if I can do that consistently, it has to be because I have entered into a life of discipline, training. That's what a disciple is. I'm not going to be able to authentically follow Jesus just by willpower. How many of you have found that to be true? Amen? And the rest of you maybe just haven't even tried. But but I, but I need more than just willpower. I have to have my will in, in alignment with God. The will needs to be there. But if I'm going to authentically follow Jesus, Christians for 2,000 years have understood that you've got to enter into a life of practices. There are certain practices training disciplines the spiritual disciplines that we have to build into our lives notice what paul says look look at what he says in verse 29 he says for this i toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me so i want you to see the partnership there when i when i enter into these practices these daily disciplines They are the conduits by which the power of the Holy Spirit, what Paul calls the energy, the grace of the Holy Spirit, is now going to be channeled, poured into me because of these disciplines. But God doesn't do it all by himself. There's work for me to do. There's effort I've got to put into this. That's why Paul says, for this, I toil, I struggle. This is the Christian life. And so there's work for you to do. Somebody say, there's work for me to do. Christianity involves effort. If you're going to walk with Jesus, there's going to be some effort on your part, and it's going to be combined with God's effort, God's energy towards you, and that's what produces a mature follower of Christ. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he gives us a, a very interesting picture. And he talks about, you know, in order for us in our homes, you know, right here in this building, let's just put it like this, we have lights. We have air. We have heat. We have electricity flowing through this building, which enables us to have a service like this and a, a microphone where you all can hear me. We've got, we, we're enjoying right now the benefits of the power of electricity, but in order for us to experience what we're experiencing now, this uh, electricity, there's a power grid. There are sh- there are poles planted all over our city and there's wire that stretched across these poles feeding into this building feeding into your homes and it's the structures the 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 poles and the wire that give the power of electricity something to flow through so that we all can benefit from it well jesus announces repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand So the kingdom of God is here. The power of electricity, so to speak, is here. But in order for us to enjoy the benefits of God's power, we have to have structures built into our lives that can become the channels for that power to flow through. How many of you are with me? All right. So what are some of these practices? What are these spiritual disciplines we're talking about? Well, some of them are rather obvious. Prayer, maybe the most important one, I would say. Not the only one, but it's maybe the most important. Having a life of prayer. Prayer is a structure that the power of the Holy Spirit can flow through to transform us in Christ-like character. Reading scripture, absorbing scripture, meditating on scripture. What we're doing right now, gathering together to worship. Worship is a spiritual discipline. Fellowship, community with the body of Christ is a spiritual discipline. There's a, a discipline that, that some of you have, haven't heard of called giving and tithing. Tithing is the practice of taking the first 10% of your income and giving it to God. It's a healthy practice. The discipline of serving. Like some of us, uh, by the way, you know, some of you that are greeters, some of you that are serving in that way. We, By the way, man, our worship team did a phenomenal job this morning. I want to thank Haley and... Michelle Harris and her, her family are on vacation. Michelle's our worship pastor, always does an awesome job. And, and Haley stepped up to the plate, and these other ladies, Angel and Tanya, uh, and, and all of our musicians. And then we've got Matt on the soundboard, first time on the soundboard today. Jared on the, on the, uh, the, the, the slides, Brandon Richard on the live stream. Uh, some of these folks, this is their first time doing this. And we're grateful for the, the, these folks who said, I'm going to practice the discipline of serving. So you have prayer, scripture, worship, gathering, giving, tithing, solitude. But along with all of these disciplines, there's also a practice called fasting. And I think what happens with fasting is is we kind of treat it as a separate discipline. We put it on the side in its own category. So we have all these other ones. And with these other disciplines, we understand that if I'm going to benefit from these practices... I need to adopt them into a a rhythm for my life. I don't just approach these things haphazardly. I need these things going on uh, as a part of a routine in my life. So, for example, prayer. I think most of you understand that if you're going to be a growing Christian, you have to have a regular prayer life. And I'm going to go so far as to say this. I think you need to have a daily prayer life throughout the day, really. I have a hard time seeing how anybody can grow substantially, spiritually, if they're not praying, if they don't have a healthy prayer life. If you don't have a healthy daily prayer life, nobody else can help you grow. It begins with daily prayer. So we understand prayer needs to be part of a routine. Scripture needs to be part of our our ongoing routine in life. Some of you have a daily Bible reading plan, something like that on, on, you version or something something to that effect. We understand, you know, the, the gathering together of the believers to worship. We all know this is part of a routine. Every first day of the week on Sunday at 9:30, we come here, we gather with believers and we worship together. That's a discipline that many of us here have adopted into our lives as part of a routine. Tithing. You know, every week the first 10% of my income goes to the Lord. That's a discipline that we have a routine with. So we understand with all of these practices that if we're going to benefit from them, we need them part of the daily natural rhythms of our lives. But what about fasting? Fasting is a core spiritual discipline. It's endorsed in the scriptures, and it's been practiced by Christians for 2,000 years. But I think when it comes to, to modern Christians, I think most modern Christians approach fasting very differently if they happen to fast at all we kind of see it as a a one-time sort of desperate measure it's like a last-ditch attempt you know desperate times call for desperate measures and and so we approach fasting this way like when the wheels have really fallen off when everything's going crazy around us things are falling apart we're like, oh man, it's come to this. I'm even fasting. I'm even going without a couple meals, and we treat fasting as sort of this unique technique to try to uh, twist God's arm to get God to do what we think God needs to do. And this is not really the way fasting is taught to us in the Scriptures. It's it's really fasting as a form of panic, but it's not a formational practice. And this is not the way Christians have practiced fasting for 2,000 years. So what I want for us to do as a church, and nobody's forced, obviously, to do this. This is an invitation today. But I want us together over the next 12 months. We're just going to say 2021. We'll, we'll, We'll evaluate it after. But just for the next 12 months, for the next 52 weeks, I want us to adopt a regular routine of fasting. Here's how it's going to look. Every Friday, we're going to call it the Friday fast, and we're going to fast one meal on Friday. This is how the ancient Christians, the early Christians, practiced fasting. The earliest Christians said, we're going to fast every Friday. And I want us to tap into our ancient heritage, our ancient roots, and recover the Friday fast. Now, here's why. One of the things that we confess at the very beginning of our service, every service, is we say we are not consumers. We are worshipers. We live in a time when the idol of the age is consumerism. It's this force that constantly pressures us to define ourselves as consumers and to adopt the false values of consumption, that my worth, my success in life, and how I'm doing is largely determined by the quality of things I can buy. Now, maybe some of us wouldn't consciously think this way, but the reality is, to some degree or another, we're all impacted by the mentality of consumerism. It's, you could say it like this, it's the water we swim in. And, and it's, it's the lens through which we look at life. It's the lens by which we even assess one another. We, we, we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to assess people on the basis of things like how big their house is, or, or what kind of car they drive, all of that kind of thing. And, and we can't help it. Everybody here is encompassed by it to some degree, and we can't help it. We're born into this. We swim in it. We breathe it. We eat it. We're soaked in it. And it's very destructive. So the Friday fast is going to be a form of prayerful resistance against the idolatrous practices of consumerism. Now, it's just one meal a week. We're not talking about some epic thing here. I know we live in Cajun country. It's just one meal a week. And I might fast for numerous reasons, you know, one of which is I'm prayerfully resisting the idol of this age, this demonic spirit of the age that says my purpose in life is to go through life consuming. And so now it's Friday and it's lunchtime and I'm hungry and I would like to eat. But on this day, I say no, because in my essence, that is not who I am. This is not my purpose. And I resist the spirit of the age. And so re- re- even though I'd like to have a meal, I would enjoy a meal. Today I'm saying no because I'm reminding myself that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So it's a, it, I want us to recover as a church the Friday fast. Now, how you fast on Friday is entirely up to you. But if you think of it as just one meal, if you say I'm going to fast at lunchtime on Friday, This is something that is attainable by every person here, everybody here, I promise you, everybody can do this. And we're not going to be legalistic about it either. If it's your birthday, if it's somebody's birthday, if you're on vacation, then eat. But if you think of it like this, if for the next year, if you say I'm going to fast three out of every four Fridays, then you realize over the course of an entire year, what you've essentially done is a 40 day fast. But now you have found a system to work fasting into your regular rhythm of life. Rather than just being a a desperate times calls for desperate measures kind of thing. Now you've got a system by which fasting is now part of your routine in a way that's actually forming you. So just like every first day of the week, we we gather together to worship. Just like every week, the first 10% of my income goes to the Lord. Every week on Friday lunchtime, we're going to work fasting into our lives. And it's a, it becomes now a formational practice. Well, the Friday fast is only half of Project 58. Project 58 will have two components. Because here's the other thing we're going to do. We're going to take whatever we were going to spend on lunch on that Friday. You were going to spend it anyway. You were going to go to Fizzos, or you were going to go to Burger King or you were going to make a ham and cheese sandwich, almost said ham and jelly sandwich. That it sounds kind of disgusting. You were going to eat some Campbell's soup. Whatever you were going to do, now you're not going to do it. Now you're not spending it. That Campbell's soup will just sit on the shelf for another day. So now what we'll do is we'll take that money, whatever it was, $2, $3, $5, $10, whatever it was, we're going to take it, and we're going to bring it on Sunday, and we're going to collect it in this box right here. And uh, Next week, this will be in the foyer. We're going to have a nice little decal eventually, the Project 58 box. We're going to collect that little money in this box, and then what we're going to do is we're going to take that money, and we're going to use it to help needy people in our church and in our community. And what we're going to do is every month on the fr- probably the first Sunday of the month, beginning on February, In the bulletin, we'll give you a a report, a monthly report on how we use those Project 58 funds. We're going to leave people's names out of it. Obviously, we want to preserve people's dignity, but we're going to give you a report to let you know, here's what your fasting is doing. What I love about this is, number one, it's now working fasting into the routine of our life. It's a formational practice. We're doing it together as a church. And it's not just benefiting me personally, it's benefiting people who are in need. And this is what Isaiah 58 is all about. So I want us to look at Isaiah 58 together for a few minutes. This will probably be a a short message today, maybe the shortest message of the year. But that's not saying much. I usually go way over an hour and a half. All of our newcomers, that's not true. Just a few minutes, I want to take you, I want us to walk through Isaiah 58 together. And we'll just look at it maybe a verse or two at a time. It's only 14 verses. If you look at the first verse there, this is God speaking to the prophet Isaiah. And God's telling the prophet, he says, Shout out, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, and announce to my people their rebellion to the house of Jacob their sins. So so the prophet, he's going to bring correction to the people of God. Something's not right. There's some rebellion. There's some resistance to what God wants to do. And so the Lord is telling him, lift up your voice like a trumpet and bring correction to the people. And then here's something very interesting in verse 2. He says, yet day after day, they seek me in delight to know my ways. Now, Now, wait a minute. These are people who are about to be rebuked by the prophet. God wants them to be corrected about something. And yet it says, day after day, they seek me. They delight to know, to know my ways. Well, that sounds pretty good. But there's a problem. He says, yet day after day, they seek me and delight to know my ways. And he continues, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Now, how, how do I explain this? Isaiah is being called to bring correction to a people who are very, very interested in personal, private spirituality. These are folks who are very committed to the practice of prayer. They pray their prayers every day. They're very committed to praying the Scripture and memorizing the Scripture. They're people who love to worship. They love to put on worship music at their homes and and just Get lost in worship. They, they're they good tithers. They're good attenders of, of their worship gatherings. So they're very, very committed to these personal, private practices as if this is all God cares about, as if this is all God's interested in, as if this is all God requires. And he goes on in verse 3, and you'll see verse 3 is, um, it's... Um, I don't know if I have it up there, but it's in quotations if you have it in your Bible. I don't think I have it up there. But but it's in quotations because the prophet is quoting the people of God in Jerusalem. And here's what they say. They say, why do we fast, but you, God, do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Now, I mean, w- one of the reasons for fasting is to get God's attention, and that is... That is totally valid. Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount that if we approach fasting in the right way, God will see it and He will reward us. So God is very interested in rewarding those who engage in the practice of fasting. That is a totally okay thing. But, but there are some qualifications here. And So these people are fasting. They're very spiritual people. They pray. They like to worship. They like to go to church. They, got, they like to do all of this kind of stuff but it doesn't seem to be giving them what they want. God doesn't seem to be rewarding them in the way that they expect. And they want to know why. And God's going to respond to them. They're like, God, we're fasting. But you're not doing anything about it. We're fasting, but you're not paying attention. We're fasting, but things aren't changing. You're not coming through for us. What's the deal, God? And God says to them, look. You serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. And so it's very easy for us to read that and say, well, what's what's that got to do with it? You know, if I'm praying, I'm going to church. I got on my worship music, I, got, I, I read my Bible, I got my, stud, my study Bible, I, I make notes in the margins. But listen to me, folks. When you're hard and harsh with the people around you, God is totally interested about that as well. What God wants for Northside, what God wants for the human race is not just a worshiping society. He wants a just and worshiping society. See, it's not just about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's another commandment that is inextricably linked with that one. Who knows what it is? Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what God wants from us. That's what God cares about and expects of us is that we would worship, but we would also treat people justly and kindly. And this wasn't happening with the people of Jerusalem. Verse 5, God says, Is such the fast that I choose? A day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Now we read that and we want to say yes, but the answer to all of these questions is no. He's saying, is fasting about showing off your, your humility? You know, Jesus deals with this exact issue in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he talks about people who fast and they put on a long, gloomy face because they want everybody to be impressed with their spiritual piety. And the answer is no. Here's what God really wants to see happen. Verse six, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? See, that's what we're going to be doing. That's what our fasting is going to be connected to. And it's not just about literal bread. It's going to be about just the needs, the, the, the people who have significant needs in their life, the single mom who, whose car breaks down, you know, somebody who, who just can't pay their, their mortgage, can't quite come up with the funds for that. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? You know, there are some people for whom life has been very difficult. We tend to divide society into two categories, the haves and the have-nots. And what happens with the haves sometimes is we look at the have-nots through a certain lens and we whitewash all of the have-nots and say it's because of their own stupid decisions. And they're lazy and They're not willing to put in effort and work, and that's why they're a have not. And we tend to categorize an entire group of people that way. But folks, I'm just telling you as a pastor, when I I deal with people on a person-by-person basis, there are some people for whom life has been very, very difficult, and they don't seem to have enough. And whether it's because of stupid decisions or whether it's because of things that life has put on them, God still cares about them. And they still have unsurpassable worth in the eyes of God. And God wants us, with wisdom, to be a caring people, a just people who take care of the poor in a wise way. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to take the money we would have spent, our Friday lunch money, collect it on Sunday, and we're going to use it to care for these kinds of people. This, is, this reminds me, this whole uh, little section we just read, it, it takes me back, reminds me of Jesus' parable in Matthew 25 the sheep and the goats. And he's talking about what's going to happen at the end of history on the day of final judgment. And Jesus himself is the king of all. He's going to sit on the throne. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to divide the human race, the nations into two categories, two groups, the sheep and the goats. See, Jesus doesn't look at us through the lens of haves and haves nots, have nots. He sees us through the lens of sheep and goats. And here's what he says about the sheep. He says, you're going to enter into my kingdom. Why? He says, because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. And they said, Jesus, when did we do all of that for you? Jesus says, I'm telling you, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done unto me. Jesus mysteriously identifies himself with the poor, and the sick, and the stranger, and the foreigner, and the imprisoned. These are folks who, who are not achievers. They're not the winners at life. If we were being callous, we would say they're losers. They've, they've lost out. But Jesus says, these are my people. I identify with these folks. And so part of the fast is, is to care for them. He goes on in verse 8. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. That phone's not going to keep ringing and ringing. On the first ring, God says, I'm going to answer it. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. So what we want to do is we want to combine this spiritual discipline, this formative practice of giving up a meal as a prayerful resistance against the idol of consumerism. And we want to combine that with also caring for the needy people among us. I'm going to take my Big Mac money. I'm going to take my value meal money. I'm going to take whatever I was going to spend on lunch. We're going to collect it together. We're going to use it to help needy people. It's really simple. It's very simple if you think about it. But this is the kind of stuff that God goes crazy over. I mean, you just look at what he's saying here. If you, you, he says things like this, latter part of verse 9. He says, if you remove the yoke from among you, that means the burdens that people carry. If you, re, if you help to remove the burdens that, that, that rest on people's backs, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil. By the way, I think we ought to throw that in there as well on Fridays. Friday ought to be a no pointing of the finger day. Friday is a day we're going to say no criticism, no wagging the finger, no blaming. We're going to fast pointing the finger, husbands and wives. Verse 10, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. day. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. How did you get such strong bones? Well, let me let me explain it to you. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. So, this is the kind of fast that excites God, and He says, "Here's what I'm going to do. Y- your light's going to break out and healing's going to spring up in your life." And you're going to be vindicated. And the glory of the Lord is going to be your rear guard. And when you call, I'm going to answer. And the light's going to rise in the darkness. And he says, even your gloom will be like the noonday. Even, in other words, when you're going through heartache and deep pain, even in the midst of that darkness, there's still going to be the light of hope and joy. So even the gloom is going to be like the middle of the day. And he says, it's going to make your bones strong. So project 58 is good for your bones. And be a well-watered garden and all of that. And he says in verse 12, your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. Hold it right there, Jared. You know, we live in, in a divided society a polarized society, a breached society, a fractious society. And the habit of our culture is for people to take stones, take rocks, and throw them at the other side. And sometimes we do that even in the name of God. But Jesus is the one who crosses the line as a Jewish rabbi into the forbidden territory of Samaria. And as a rabbi, he does the unthinkable and befriends a Samaritan woman. She is the enemy. And he engages her in conversation. And she becomes a believer. And she tells her town about this man. And Jesus stays there in the town of Sychar. And the whole town comes to, they say, you know what? We've come to believe that this man is the savior of the world because he can even repair the breach between Jews and Samaritans. And this is what God has called us and desires of us in a polarized town and a polarized culture. God's called us to be repairs of that breach and restorer of the streets to live in. God's not going to kick Crowley, Louisiana in the garbage can. That's not his desire. God wants to see this town in this area. Healthy, restored. The streets are restored and God wants us to participate. He wants us to be repairs of the breach restorers of streets to live in. How many of you can say amen to that? And then finally, let me finish with this passage, verse 13 and 14. He says, if you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interest on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, serving your own interests and pursuing your own affairs. I think some of us would would need to take this to heart for twenty twenty-one. Some of us need to make the Sabbath or uh, the, the day of worship and honoring God on Sunday, which which for the Jews Sabbath was Friday night to Saturday night. It was a day of rest, it was a day of enjoying family and enjoying God. And they would attend synagogue on that Sabbath. Well, for us, we have a day of worship as well. And it's the day of Sunday. And some of us, I think, we need to adopt this passage as maybe a, a a verse for us to be challenged with today. That this year, next 12 months, I'm going to make the Sabbath a real part of my life. He says, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. To learn more about Northside Assembly of God, check out our website at www.northsidecrowley.com.